This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dr. John Zarelli, a philosopher with particular interests in cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and the law. He is currently a Lever-Hume Fellow at the University of Oxford, a research associate in the Oxford Institute for Ethics and AI, and an associate fellow in the Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Zarelli joins me today to explore the intricacies of neural networks and their ability to mimic human intelligence. We particularly focus on the emotional response to chat GPT. Dr. Zarelli sheds light on the complex topic of AI bias, its implications for society, and the ever-evolving relationships between AI and the law. Uncovering the challenges and opportunities that lay ahead, really pretty cool. So get ready for an enlightening conversation on this remarkable intersection of technology, human emotion, bias, and the future of legal frameworks on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. John, I'm really excited about this conversation. Thank you for uh, coming on. I have to start in this place, which is it feels like the world's – we've been talking about artificial intelligence since I started reading books in the early 70s from Isaac Asimov and, you know, every other science fiction writer. And but and, and in as people involved in tech or, or, or sort of connected loosely or deliberately into this world – machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation, technology automation. This is decades and decades old conversation. But in the last, seems like year, <laughs> nine months, the world's lost its mind. Like it's on fire. The AI is coming. What is the, what's this emotional um, response for? I, have, first of all, have you experienced that yourself sort of around you? And two, why do you think we're reacting this way right now? Most of the technology that is causing this renewed sense of fascination has been around for quite a while, as you point out. In yeah. fact, in, in a rudimentary form, the technology was there in the 1980s. Mm. And that particular technology that's uh, made all the difference to the way we perceive this AI now is called machine learning. Mm -hmm. Many of your listeners would, would be familiar with the term. And it's only one type of AI, I should say. So the artificial intelligence is actually a very broad field. Only one type of it um, is, is called machine learning. And that's the one that's generating all of the, the emotion and the, the sense of fascination that you're discussing. And what happened is that uh, the technology that was there in the 1980s mm -hmm. was pushed as far as it could go with the computational power and the access to data that you had in the 1980s and early 1990s. And then uh, with the advent of the internet and massive advances in the amount of data that you can store, so an expansion in memory capacity and the power, the processing power of computation over the past 20 years, um, combined with an innovation in the technology itself from the 1980s, a, a method 
called back propagation. We can get into the details later, maybe. Right. But an innovation in, in the technology meant that in 2006, suddenly, not only could you um, use the same um, network technology, but you could actually use it um, at greater scale. Mm-hmm. And another innovation occurred in 2012 when this technology was applied to image recognition, so computer vision. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, for the first time ever, we had machines that could very reliably detect, you know, whether something was a bird or a cat and didn't take too long after that to get systems that could tell the difference between different species of birds. And then in 2017, uh, what happened was you had this thing called a transformer, which was invented. And actually, we'll come to GPT chat Mm -hmm. But the T in GPT stands for transformer. And a transformer is um, essentially something that enables uh, a network, a neural network, to make connections between long-range items. Think of it as a kind of way of holding a long sentence in your head and knowing where you are at that point in the sentence, not getting lost in the sentence. So long-range dependencies. That was 2017. Now we're in 2023 and all of these innovations have been tracking along, combining with each other. Um, They've resulted in this amazing piece of technology that we have all been witness to in the past, I would say, six months Mm -hmm. at GPT. And I think that it's the sheer astonishment at what GPT can do that we thought was not possible for any kind of human-created <laughs> uh, uh, human artifact right. that has made us realise, wow, this was all science fiction, but now it's at, the science fiction is here. Like We're actually living through the science fiction moment when what was science fiction is no longer science fiction. Yeah. So I think that's what's captured the the public's attention. It it is. I that's a great walkthrough. I had I've never heard that walkthrough. I love that, and uh, I've already written down some follow up. But uh, when I've been experiencing ChatGPT, which I've just got to say on the front end, and I'm familiar with them, and I've messed with Dolly before, and I'm I'm um, looking forward to um, uh, GPT four. Um, that's uh, hopefully releasing soon because of some of the enhancements of data sets and some of the other ways that I'd like to use it. But it's this weird dichotomy for me. I feel like it's, um, have you seen like some of the best holograms out there? Like like mind-blowing, fool you, unless you can walk up and touch them, hologram or AI generative uh, people. And they, they're talking to me, they're looking at me, they're making eye contact, there's body language. Like I'm like, what is going on? It's so cool. And I realized, oh, it's an illusion. But it feels so real. I pull my hand back. It's like the when I was a kid, remember, you used to put the thing up to your eyes. You're, you're younger than me, considerably younger than me. But you used to have the, uh, the thing where you could squeeze it. And it was like, what is this thing out here? So it's this illusion. And the one hand, I think this is the world's greatest autocomplete system. You know, it's, it's, it's a bot. But it gives me this illusion 
that, oh, well, what you really meant, I understand what you wrote here is the question or you spoke in as the question, but what you really meant was this. And, and let me give you the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Where it breaks the illusion is when it goes so spectacularly wrong, it's hilarious. You know, Dr. John Zarelli um, invented the great white shark and he swims with them daily and his, the, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, I he did? Well, let's make it Shark Week. Let's change the thing. And it's really, or it says it about you. But if you didn't know that, if nobody knew, you just sit there and it auto-completes or whatever, this illusion, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm nodding my head, sure. That's for people like me who aren't intimidated. I shouldn't say we're not intimidated. You'd be a fool not to allow your mind to run to the negative consequences uh, in addition to the positive opportunities. But I, but I don't have this immediate sort of visceral reaction of fear or excitement around fire. It's just like, ooh, this, this is an interesting thing. But every now and then when I see that illusion and I know enough people around me to not question the answers or to question the outcome and ask it, hmm, how'd you get to that? Or that I don't, you know, that doesn't seem to line up with my spidey sense, like a GPS telling you to drive into the ghetto. I mean, like, no, nah, I don't. I think that's right thing. I have that intuition because I've driven for 45 years or 40 years uh, across the um, U.S., but s some of my children who have only used a GPS do not have that intuition. So that's a, a long rambling way of saying I love this hologram and I sometimes forget it's a hologram. Um, and when I realize it's fooling me, it can be unsettling. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is that um, if you think about autocomplete, this what, what ChatGPT, for example, is doing is is more than just autocomplete. It, in a sense, it's autocomplete, but there's more to it. So this is an example that I I took from uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who is essentially the godfather of of deep learning. Okay. Uh, I'm sure, if you're familiar with the name, but he gives the example of um, a sentence like, um, he couldn't pack the trophy in the suitcase because it was too small. When you say it there, you mean the suitcase was too small. Right. right. If you ask, if you, if you make the claim, he couldn't fit the, uh, he couldn't pack the trophy in the suitcase because it was too big. In that instance, the it is referring to the trophy. The trophy. Right. Um, but in the first example, the it was referring to the, the suitcase. Right. Now we know that. We pick that up immediately. If you're just doing autocomplete, you've got no way of knowing which one of those is the right answer. Mm -hmm. but there's another level of understanding that obviously chat GPT is able to, to engage you. And that's, that's quite impressive. So if you, if you, if you ask chat GPT the question, um, if I were to say, or um, even just, just give it right. a statement, like if I couldn't pack the trophy into the suitcase because it was too big. What was too big? It'll give you the right answer. Right. That's quite quite interesting. The other thing to be said about ChatGPT is that of all the errors it makes, you know, it clearly does make plenty of errors. Right. 
none of them seem to be grammatical errors. So it's got the grammar, it's got the syntax down pat. Yeah. Uh, it might make semantic errors in the sense that it might say something about you, David, that's right. false, but it won't say it in a way that's ungrammatical. Right. It's in itself an achievement. For a long time, people thought you couldn't get to human level syntactic competence just by being flooded with millions of examples of how the language is spoken. But it turns out that if you train a system with 45 billion words, 45 million uh, long novels worth of, 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 of sentences, you can acquire the syntax of a language. Do you ever, um, I want to get more into sort of our stuff, but as you're describing this, I'm sitting here laughing to myself, not about, not about you or what you're saying, but it reminds me of, um, my dad for decades, uh, through IBM was on the space shuttle program here in the States. And then for quite a while after that on, um, space station and he, uh, long since retired, but when he and I would travel together, we would fly he was always fascinated and in love with the art of flying. His father, my grandfather, was a P-51 pilot. One of the longest sources of arguments between the British and the Americans, what was greater, the Spitfire or the Mustang? Um, we would say the Mustang, and they said, but not until we put our Rolls-Royce engine in it. So it's still part of an international dispute. But I digress. But it was this – he didn't take – both the engineering and the novel of like for all of human history. And if you think about that in some respects, like we're, we're just the last 10 seconds in the history of humanity as a lot of people understand it. And just in these last few minutes, here we are flying some of the dreams from ancient mythology that we've thought. And so while he's really close and part of um, this world of space exploration and sophisticated engineering and process and programs, just sitting on the plane, looking out the window, is just a joy still to him. Maybe not getting on and off and all those rules, but just the, the act of flying. When you sit there um, and participate in the deep thinking about these topics, do you ever sit there and chuckle to yourself in that same way? Not too long ago, we were wondering if we could teach a machine how to play a game. If we could, it certainly couldn't beat a chess master. Mm. And and it, even if it could ever get to that level, it could never beat something as esoteric as Go or whatever. And now the best in, machines in the world, no human will ever beat them again. Like they're just, um, at least that's the argument, that they're just, they're, they've so evolved and they've got so many of these things. And these very specific narrow things I know. And now here we are to master something that seems as simple as syntax, but it isn't. And they're able to just master it. And it's just another step, you know, another domino falling down on this journey of um, putting my best spin on it, tech technological marvel. And mm. uh, I think many times people around it, we talk about all of the positives or negatives, but we just don't admire the elegance and the beauty of these things as they're being developed. Do you ever have that experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I too share your your father's thing about flight. 
Every yeah. time I'm in a plane, I, I do. I actually marvel at the fact that I am hurtling through the air at 900 kilometers an hour. Right. That still gets me. But for the most part, because I was born into the information age, the the you know, the internet age, right. uh, kind of age in the internet age, uh, it's easy to take for granted. But mm-hmm. this is probably the first time that I've had that effect you're describing, that sense mm-hmm. of how, how technology can go. On the other hand, I mean, we're doing more than syntax when we're engaging in dialogue. For sure. There's a bunch of stuff that's happening. I mean, so much of language is not even about communication anyway. So much of language is just kind of chewing the fat, you know, right. asking you about the weather, uh, getting a sense of the kind of person you are by the right. way you say things. You know, there's, there's so much more that, that we're doing besides conveying information when we're talking. And we haven't got there yet with with AI. But, I mean, there are image recognition systems there are emotion recognition systems all it would take is to combine the best most optimal development of each of these applications put them into the same system allow them to communicate with each other so that information from you know the emotion recognition hub is fed into the 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 syntax hub and so forth and and you are building up to something that is more than the sum of its parts potentially mm-hmm. so the effect of seeing this stuff happen particularly with chat gpt has made me marvel uh as well as be skeptical at the same time mm-hmm. but then marvel again and mm-hmm. then skeptical it's a kind of alternating dance between being blown away but also skeptical it's, it's a strange place to be in actually I kind of don't know what to what to quite how to react yeah some days i think it is um you know the doom of humanity or it is the hope of humanity but most days i'm just happy that it could tell you know back in the day it was very famous or very funny and well known at least in the states if you had a a VHS player. I don't even know if you know what a VHS player is, but we'd have a VHS player. And I'll bet you nine out of 10 homes had the clock just flashing on it. Like yes. nobody ever set the stupid clock. And yeah. now I can just tell the the system, if I even need to think about it, set the clock, change the clock, fix the thing, tune the whatever. And at some point, it won't even do it. It'll be like the, the most perfect, uh, it'll be like Alfred from Batman. Just walks in arranges things, organizes things, you know, you, all the romantic comedies that we like as the person goes to reach, you know, the husband or the wife or the partner or whoever, the, the drinks right there, like they're automatically, one of my favorite scenes um, from the movie Hitch. Did you ever see Hitch with... Uh, Tom Hanks. Uh, what's that? With Tom Hanks? No, Hitch is a, a very funny romantic comedy with... Um, can't even believe I'm I'm spacing Kevin James and Will Smith, and Kevin James goes to ask this woman out on a date, and he's, he's standing there off to the side. She said, "Sure, let me give you my number," and Will Smith's hand reaches in and puts the pen inside of his jacket, so he can then reach out the pen and get that. Like there is some point where these things are going to be part of our lives in such a way that they're not just going to be intuitive; they're they're going to. Um, or be you know be able to kind of help keep us prepared, but they're going to be intuitive and guess all these things. I look forward to that sort of benevolent um, world. As you were 
so that's, I think, one of the great versions of it. But I, I sometimes get giddy. I do take a lot of the tools, not just generative AI that we're talking about, but automation and technology. We're, we're sitting here, you're in uh, uh, the UK, I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's, you know, as far as I can tell, it's a real-time, speed-of-light conversation. I love that. I love that. It's fascinating. It's all being balanced over here and all these systems that I don't even know um, half of how they work. But one of the things you said, and I 100% res resonate with this, is that when we're talking to people, our subconscious mind it's making all of these assessments. We, we don't even know it. And it's informing us on, should I, should I be um, skeptical? Should I be cynical? Should I be aware? Is there a dangerous vibe? You know, what, whatever, what's going on? But a lot of that is because of my bias. Like I grew up in a particular neighborhood. I have a particular experience with crime or the lack of crime. I have a particular affluence. I, there's all of these things that over my 50-something years have informed me and influenced me. And as I listen to you talk and as we have a conversation and your mannerisms and whatever, it assigns you, maybe incorrectly, but according to my bias, a certain category of believability, threat level, all these other things. And then that gets also informed by how we talk, but all of these things come together. And we talk a lot about bias as we look at these tools because the people who build them, and I'm not picking on any particular demographic today, tend to be people who look like me, mm -hmm. um, at least in the States. And so it's interesting to see that as I ask this tool to give me, for example, a paragraph on something, unless I very specifically say and try to write it in the style, if I just say, hey, give me a summary on John's book on work, future work, or on um, being a citizen in the world of AI or whatever, well, it's going to feed it a, in a way that the people who created that program will have expect to receive it as opposed to maybe somebody else in the world or a different cultural perspective or whatever. Do you, I know you have an opinion on this. Can you help us to understand is bias real and why should it matter? There are so many different types of bias. Okay. So, so bias is, is on the one hand, a technical statistical concept. Okay. The one example of that is just called, sampling bias or selection bias okay uh, which is about um you know if you have too many representatives in your in your sample from one particular category so if i'm if i'm uh trying to work out what people um between the ages of 20 and 30 are doing mm -hmm. for employment I, there would be sampling bias there if I get too many people of that age group from, let's say, the tech sector mm -hmm. or from professional sectors, lawyers, mm -hmm. engineers, accountants, without focusing on, uh, without including all the other potential categories of job that I could be looking at, um, waste disposal, mm -hmm. working in recycling facilities. So that's one kind of bias. Then there's the of pernicious type of bias that we associate uh, with prejudice, just not liking people or not trusting people because they come from some demographic, either they're from the poor neighborhood or they're from the Latino neighborhood or they're from the black neighborhood. Um, so, you know, th th these are, these are quite different 
notions of bias. Right. But um, they're all operating and they're all operating all the time. Even when you do your utmost to avoid them, they have ways of creeping back in. Right. Um, I mean, I sometimes use this example. If you are, if you're conscious of a particular bias against some group and you want to do your best to avoid being biased in that way, one way to avoid it would be to overcompensate the other way. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just, that's, in, that's introducing another kind of bias right. and maybe other uh, minority demographics will be disadvantaged by you trying to be unbiased towards the target group. Right. So it's a it's a tricky situation. Um, is there a particular? Well, I guess as human about? beings, we move through the world of bias all the time. We have um, we have to establish, you know, in the when we made the U.S. Constitution, we had to create a Bill of Rights because of. Look, how do we make sure we don't <clears throat> and we don't get it right? You know, obviously, just from our brief human history of a uh, few hundred years as a country, we don't get it right all the time, and we have to come back and amend and adjust. And we see that in the legal system, and um, <clears throat> and, and so we we are aware of it, and we have to adjust to it. One of the, the sort of the underlying thing with me with all of these tools is they are so freaking powerful and they can move so quickly and they can have such a far-reaching consequence that even as human beings, and if and if I give the majority of us the the best intention possible, like if we're biased about a particular thing, is because we've we've come in good faith to a particular idea that something's valuable or invaluable or risky or not risky, and as we have experience with it, we change our mind many times. Oh, it's way more riskier than I thought. Or these are people just like I'm people, like the, the tribe that's different than me or whatever. And they're just trying to raise their babies or do these other things. And so that moves at a particular pace. And it's, it's certainly very consequential, positively and negatively. Um, when, you, when you have those biases in a tool and we don't have a good check and balance on kind of checking it, and I'm not looking for like the perfect positive ratio. I think that's a fool's errand. Um, I don't know that we've ever been able to do that, but certainly one of the things with these tools is that they, in my opinion, they can, um, they can have very, very quickly far reaching impact. And it just feels like that is an area that, um, now we're talking about more, but, um, in the regular public discourse, it, it's just an idea that we're coming to, um, really embrace, not the engineers or researchers who study this or build this but that are the consumers that are consuming it. And, and so how should we think about this and how should we work through it? And what are some of the consequences we should be aware of? So I, I think the, what you were saying in your earlier part of the question, which is about how a lot of the people that work on the technology happen to look like you and happen to right. look like me. Well, I, I think that is, that is such a big part of what the problem is. Mm. When you uh, experience the world from a particular point of view that has been conditioned by a particular kind of upbringing and certain values, you can't help but bring that perspective in so many unconscious ways um, to bear upon the way you will uh, program machines. You will you'll interpret the problems that an algorithm needs to solve in a certain way. 
Mm -hmm. It will um, conceive of the answers and the the good answers, the uh, the uh, I suppose the worthwhile answers, as being limited to certain options, simply mm -hmm. because the way you've experienced the world. Mm -hmm. So if you've never had to, for example, contend with a menstrual cycle, for example, mm -hmm. um, and found yourself without, you know, sanitary material mm -hmm. at, at a particular moment, you know, and when, when you're out um, in, in the public, well, you wouldn't necessarily approach algorithms in the same way, I imagine. I mean, right. so women who, who might have been caught in a pickle once or twice without what they need um, during a work function, I mean, they're not going to look at the problem in, in a way in which that possibility, that contingency doesn't arise. They're going to be mindful, oh, in the course of a day, that could happen to someone. And so their answers to, you know, their, their algorithmic solutions will, will look different. And because the tech sector has been dominated mostly by, by you know, white men, right. Uh, you, you get that reflected in the, the, the nature of the design, um, the sorts of problems that they're, they're there to address, even just the idea of the idea behind so much of the technology um, in our world is, is about immediate convenience mm -hmm. and about cutting as much time from your life on administrative things and chores as possible. Right. But I mean, not everyone thinks of those things as chores. Right. Some people have a different attitude towards the necessaries of life, you know, getting the children to school or um, packing their sandwiches. It might not be something that is viewed as a chore. It might be viewed as part of a loving act that right. you do. You know, so, but if you design everything uh, on the assumption that we've got to minimise time uh, spent on these chores... Uh, so as to make more time for real productive work, like the stuff where I'm producing things at work. Right. And, you know, you'll end up in the world that we've got, which is one very much about um, convenience and uh, minimization of tasks that are not seen to be uh, essential to your productivity as an agent in the economy. Well, that's all bearing the, the stamp of a kind of a man's world, you might say. Yeah. yeah. As you were talking, it uh, there's so many instances popped in my brain, but a more recent one was um, <clears throat> back to flying. My daughters were going to fly up to uh, New York City, and they were looking at a variety of airlines. And in Atlanta, our main airline major hub is Delta. <clears throat> and I said, well, why don't you just look at a Delta? You can pick your own seat and it's got these amenities and I travel a lot on it. And they're like, cause it's twice as much. I said, but yeah, but you get all this stuff. They're like, we could care less. They're slender. I'm six foot three pushing 295 pounds. I want my seat. I want the seat belt thing to be able to expand all the way around my big old torso and all this other stuff there. My wife is half Japanese and half Irish. My daughters are much more slender it doesn't even enter their brain. It is just give me a hundred. That's what you would think about, Dad. That's not what we would think about. Give me a 
$125 cheap flight. I don't care what my seat is. I just need to get there so I can have the maximum experience and come back. I, w- I would never consider doing that. Um, the other one was during the pandemic when so many people in the States anyway were rushing out to get toilet paper. I have three girls seventeen at that time, 17, 19, and 21, and a wife of 30-something years I was stocking up in feminine products in my cart because we have been in this situation. And because of my experience where so many other people, some of my buddies were like, what are you doing? Like, why? You don't know what it's like um, to have this sideways or the stress of having to deal with this if if you feel like you could be vulnerable. This is a very emotional, embarrassing because you've never had to go through it. You don't know what it's like. And so um, I don't know that I would call it bias, but certainly there's an element of that, that experience there. And so for me, the things that are important to get in the basket and get home um, are different than him and my and how I would prosecute the world. Yeah, yeah. That's- yeah. So one of the things that you I've heard you say that I thought was really interesting was um, the ability for... I don't know if this is related to bias, but the ability for some of these tools, artificial intelligence tools, to to microfocus um, and to influence the public, um, for example, it could be out there on a social media platform. And I think you brought to my attention a, a study where if the social media platform um, said, hey, your friends are voting, they're out there voting, or they're voting for these people, or these situations are happening, and we saw a very real effect um, of the results of that uh, campaign. And so, you know, as I thought, started thinking about that, first, did I understand that correctly? And as you think about that, um, why do you think this should be a warning to us? I mean, isn't it a good thing? I see on the news all the time, get out and vote, get out and participate. Why Why is that something, an area that you would want to call to our attention? So the idea that you can um, influence people, mm-hmm. manipulate people into doing things, indeed even manipulate large groups of people, uh, is not is not new, right? We're familiar with the idea of the um, populist politician who tries to whip up certain emotions against, say, right. migrants or, or some subgroup in order to uh, maximize their chances of being voted in mm-hmm. or you know, maximize someone else's chance of being voted in that's um, preferential to that person, that politician. That's 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 old. That, right. That's been around for a long time. What what technology does, though, and, and in particular the example that you're referring to, which was um, something we know about because Facebook published an experiment in Nature, in the, the journal Nature back in 2010, which told us about this. Hmm. Um, what the technology now allows is very, very selective targeting of information to people. So whereas in the past I might have had to apply a kind of scattergun approach and just uh, uh, leaflet bomb an area, you know, letterbox an area to the point where just everyone indiscriminately receives some material that, that I want them to read about who I am as a political candidate, for example, I can now selectively target people 
that I know are already disposed to voting for me. Mm-hmm. And if I can tweet the message a certain way, I might be able to get those people actually voting. I might be able to nudge them into voting. And mm. I'm not just nudging people to vote for anyone as I would be if I sent a, a general message to everyone reminding them to vote. I know that I'm actually nudging the right people to go out and vote, people that are disposed to vote for me. And that's not something that we've had at the level of precision that we now have with so certain social media platforms, including Meta. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, you might think, well, in the past, companies had companies and political parties had data on certain neighbourhoods. They knew who was likely to live in a certain area or on a certain affluent street. So, you know, you had that sort of precision targeting. But this is orders of magnitude more precise than that. This mm-hmm. leaves that completely behind. Um, so in the in the 2010 Facebook case, Facebook was able to show that by giving people a, a reminder to vote, but adding the faces of friends of theirs who had already voted, so that they would see a reminder to vote along with, let's say, six faces of friends who had also already voted, they were right. able to generate an extra 60,000 people to go out to vote. So That's all incredible. it takes is that tiny tweak to the algorithm to make people vote. Now, there were 60 million people in that experiment that were shown this particular message, right. 60 million, and all they got was 60,000. So you might say that's not that's not an, a great number. That's not a lot of people. And in fact, it turns out to be 0.1 of a percent. But when you consider that the 2016 election um, turned on, I think, something like 80,000 votes in three voting districts in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, 60,000 is not a small figure in in absolute terms. It might be very small in relative terms. It's only 0.1 of a percent. Right. In absolute terms, in terms of changing an election outcome, that's getting dangerously high. What if a company like Facebook, not saying that they've done it, right. but what if they wanted to improve the chances of a particular candidate getting elected? Mm. Who's to stop them? from targeting people they know are going to vote a certain way uh, so that those people end up turning out on election day. Who's to stop them? And then, I mean, 60 million, 0.1% is 60,000, but the voting population of the US is something like 240 million, in which case 0.1% would be 240,000. That's three times as many people as determined the 2016 election. So I think it's not necessarily that the technology is presenting new problems always, Mm -hmm. problems for democracy, problems for, um, you know, governance, legitimacy, and like we were talking about before, bias, discrimination, and so Mm -hmm. forth. But it is posing these old questions in, uh, in new ways. And 
at such a scale that they might actually be new problems completely. In the U.S. in particular, a lot of people who aren't familiar with the way that our electoral college and our voting works. Um, And this is, and my comment is not for any particular side, it's just sort of recognizing the complexities and the frailties of um, the way that the system works. You don't have to, 240,000 more votes in LA is not going to change how California voted for any, at the state level, for any national candidate. Um, It just is not going to do it because there's such a disparity. There's millions and millions of votes. But if it is in a state that's pretty close and it's a state that says um, we go county by county and if you win the county, even if it's just by a simple majority or 2% so you don't need a runoff or something, which is a few thousand votes now, not – millions of votes, it's a 3,000, 10,000 in many cases, then that county tips the scale of that state, which then um, that whole state's vote system or significant portion of it, I'm sorry, uh, um, electoral votes go to. And then people start saying, well, let's get rid of the electoral college. Well, the point isn't let's get rid of it or keep it because there are checks and balances with these things. It's, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to advocate for um, wholesale change, all I'm tr- like to point out is these are the vulnerabilities of applying tools without being aware of how they can be manipulated. When they're for our team, we generally are cool with it. When we're, it's against our team, we are not fine with it, and it feels like it's unjust. Um, and I just want people to be aware because it can; these things can happen so quickly. And I wouldn't have believed it particularly setting aside the voting system. Have you ever been in a, um, like a comedy show where the, what they call uh, the mentalists come in and they do some thought experiment on the room? Have you ever seen this happen? I've seen that happen. Yeah. It's, I, you see it on TV. I'm like, there's no way this is true. It's not going to happen. And I would be the one that would draw the bunny and not the, uh, tower or whatever. Well, I went through that one time with a, with a, you know, 150 people in the room and whatever. 98% 98% of us did exactly, were manipulated without really even paying attention to it. And I'd like to think of myself as a thinker and trying to go against the grain and whatever. Absolutely, it was uh, unbelievable. Now, if you got tools that can fine-tune over time to do that, I could see how uh, the potential there uh, could be pretty serious. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, in the case that I used just then what what is what was facebook doing it was kind of generating a kind of you might say fomo you know fear of missing out right by showing you that your friends have voted it's kind of saying well maybe you should go out and vote so that when you get together with your buddies you can talk about who you voted for that's right Talk about what it was like to go out and vote you know so it's which in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Right. right? We're social creatures and we want to do things together. But are you voting for the right reason? Should you be voting because your friends voted or should you be voting because you care about the issues and you want to get involved? Um, I mean, maybe, maybe 
you should be voting for other reasons. It could be, you know, it's a good thing uh, to exercise your democratic rights uh, along with your compatriots. That's a good thing. You know, it, right. it's a social activity. Politics is about the social. But you can exploit that in a way that's to the advantage of, of in this case, Facebook. Right. Um, in, in theory. And that's what's worrying about it. And that's just one example. That's just the FOMO effect. Right. Um, what about uh, using algorithms um, to strategically target certain well-placed actors in the in the economy mm. whose behavior then creates a similar herd effect and then you end up with a stampede on the stock market mm-hmm. the value of stocks just completely drops or it you know races really high affects uh let's say affects interest rates, affects the Federal Reserve's thinking about where interest rates should go. I mean, it's all operating on, you might say, something quite innocent, like a social effect, a herd effect. Mm-hmm. Just people want to do what other people are doing. But it's it, the, the, the consequences can be actually catastrophic. Sure. So if, if the power to move people en masse by targeting just a few people resides with one entity this is worrying yeah yeah for sure and i mean we've we've got story after story at least in our uh country's to tradition of a rush you know a gold rush uh you know fill in the blank uh we we have a tendency to back to fomo to rush in and um we claim a piece of land we displace people we um, we impact the environment. Like we're, I don't think any of these people are quote unquote bad people, but we are, we are as fast as we could move back then, which was basically the speed of smell. So not particularly fast, but even in that limited, um, technological experiences we're in and we're disrupting. And many times it's decades later before we realize here's the unintended consequences or here's the harm or here's the lack of regulation and how it worked out. And, this comes back to less about informing people or reminding people to get out and vote and everybody should go vote or, or any of these other things. It is that before you even realize it, you can be manipulated to somebody else's um, tune and the, con- you know, the consequences are done. Here we are. And I, and I didn't realize it. And there's some, I mean, that's, you know, some marketing is how do I persuade you to go buy something maybe that you don't need or to go into debt or do all these other things. I mean, there's that there and there's the responsibility we have as human beings. But I just mean that some of these tools are so powerful and so quick that the uh, consequences can be pretty significant before we realize there's real consequences happening. Yeah. And in terms of like dealing with the problem, we can say we'll regulate it. So we'll, you know, we'll prohibit this sort of behavior or we'll somehow clamp down on it. But that's tricky too. Right. Because proving that Facebook is doing that in itself is, is no easy task. Right. I mean, how would you prove that they're actually doing it unless you have whistleblowers that are right. doing it? Uh, the job for us. I mean, we, you certainly can't go and check every other person like you 
and check what sort of ads they're getting on Facebook and compare them with yours. You don't, you don't have access to another 100,000 people's Facebook account. Right. We're all at the terminal end of one path right. and we can't compare, you know, what it's like to be at this end of the, of the algorithm's path with what it's like to be on the end of someone else's path. So that there's a massive evidentiary issue about how you would prove this from the mm-hmm. outside. Um, it, it would call for new new forms of evidence gathering. You would mm-hmm. effectively have to ask people to, to take screenshots, you know, and send them in to the district attorney's office or something. It's right. it's not it's not an easy problem to tackle. I mean, right. as a matter of aspiration, we can say yes, this should not happen. Uh, the power to do this should be uh, strictly limited under certain circumstances and conditions. Yeah, but setting up the apparatus to monitor compliance is going to be, uh, you know, the, is the devil in the detail. Maybe you need some auditor to go in and check check what's right. happening, check the logbooks, check the records. It, it can happen, right. but it's it's not only is the problem difficult, not only are the consequences potentially far-reaching, but the solutions also need to be quite imaginative. Yeah. And, I, and as we're having this conversation, I'm not imagining any particular platform. I, I feel like what the platforms, um, if I'm if I'm just being generous and and um, not getting caught up in some of the conversations that's happening in the world today about maybe the motive of the platform, I, I just think platforms are trying to generate traffic, right? We live in the attention age or the attention economy as opposed to information or whatever, that point's been made many times. And so how do I drive more traffic? How do I get more people moving? How do I get whatever the outcome of elections are is the outcome of elections. And so uh, I'm not reading into it that any particular corporate entity, I think that would be a level of coordination that would be, if they can do that, we need to put them in charge of national debt and other things. I just I just think they're trying to drive, um, and maybe there comes out later that there are, there's proof that that's not true. But at, just at this surface level, you're 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 in your chasing of likes and attention to get our reptile brains to respond in sort of our evolutionary way. Oh, I need to like a minnow. Oh, there's a there's a drop over there. Run over there and run over there and run over there. Um, whatever the consequences is, negative or positive, there's a manipulation that's happening because platforms' goal is to how do I get your attention? How do I keep your attention? And how do I inf- spread the attention to other things so I get more people involved and more things involved, I, you know, without making a uh, moral judgment on whether that's the right way to monetize or not monetize things. It is, that's that economic model. And so by getting this attention and this activity, I could see why it would be attractive to them. Less about the outcome of the attention and more about just driving activity. On the other hand, if if you have a candidate, let's say a political <clears throat> candidate, mm-hmm that uh, is pretty upfront about their intentions, about mm-hmm. how to deal with, say, the big banks or big tech. They're, they're, they're open about their, their intentions for that sector. They sure. want to bring, you know, let's say, professional codes of conduct into the training of computer scientists in the tech industry. They want to set up a kind of like a body that's similar to the state bar in you mm-hmm. know states that regulate the legal profession, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So you've got someone that, that, that campaigns on these sorts of issues. I, I think then it would be a little naive to imagine that um, one of the, the platforms, and there's not many of them, let's face it, right. it's very small, very right. small uh, space. It would be naive, I think, to, to imagine that the, the, the platform would only be concerned with traffic. I think at that point, I mean, the overall aim to be a going concern. It's to, right. it's to continually make profit. And yes, one of the objectives along that, uh, along the way will be to increase traffic. But if there's this person over here saying that they're going to come in and they're going to shake things up and they're going to, you know, regulate us and what we do, you'd be very tempted, I would imagine, as a company that's chasing the bottom line. Right. Maybe use the power you've got to... Right. Get someone else voted. You know, get, right. get shape a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure, it's. I mean, look, I'm not naive. I think that it's. Uh, um, it's at least. Uh, it's at least a possibility and an accidental consequence, if not a deliberate consequence, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm probably not going to go on record and say this platform or that platform or whatever, yeah. but it is for it. I think it's got the right attention or more and more people are are saying, wait a minute, what's going on? We've seen platforms change hands in ownership. We see um, what I try to, we, we, we see scrutiny coming. What I try to encourage my circle, because my circle is a pretty wide political, uh, religious, uh, ethnic swath of people. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be for or against something because your team is being exalted or um, held Not accountable, enough. right? Because the, it is. Look, if they're if they're not against you today, give it some time. They'll be against you tomorrow. And what you want is a. You know, that's why I love. I think the foundational right in America, anyway. Not everybody agrees with me, but I think the foundational right is freedom of speech. And then we have rules around what. Uh, you know, what that looks like, what um, uh, libel looks like. It's very difficult and all these other things. And I, because everything for me flows out of freedom of speech. And so I'm very cautious around how we impact that. We for sure need to impact it. Famously, you can't, you'll fire in a movie theater here. There are things that you can and can't say for sure. And we agree as a, as a nation by and large to kind of manage through that. But it is, um, I think if we didn't have those boundaries and those rules and that scrutiny, we didn't have libel laws, we didn't have issues with plagiarism or whatever, or the idea of pursuing those, um, it would be a catastrophe. Like it would completely crumble. It is, um, so I'm not naive. I just, uh, it, it is a, we're not going to solve it today, but, but I want people to be aware of it. I want them to be aware of, you don't believe that you can be manipulated because everything's quote unquote fake. It's like that line from the Incredibles. If everybody's an incredible, then nobody's an incredible, right? If everything's fake, that's almost like being fake. Not everything's fake. Just sort through, but be aware that these biases and whether it's at the platform level or some people manipulating the platforms because there's uh, somebody told me the other day, well, I'm on this other platform over here. They don't have the that over there. That just means they don't have a check and balance that this one does, which means you can still be fed all kinds of misinformation. Be wise as you sort through it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah, and I, I, I also share happen to share your view about freedom of expression as well. Yeah, 
think a, a much wiser person than me said that if you don't believe in freedom of speech for those that you despise, you don't believe in it at all. That's 100% true. We should have the right to be discourteous and some other salty words that I can't express on a podcast like this, but it's... um which then gives the marketplace the right to then ostracize me and not do business with me. And, it, you know, my ideas are uh, horrible ideas and or my products or whatever, for sure. But we, um, we've just seen times in human history where when we try to silence people, we end up crushing freedom of assembly. We end up crushing freedom of religion. We end up crushing all, or no religion or any of these other things. It just the consequences of we we need to absorb the consequences of the mess in order to get the maximum benefit. Maybe that's just a, you know, a U.S. kind of Western idea, but it is one that um, I think is near and dear uh, or, or very consequential to um, how we flourished as a country. So, but, it, but that doesn't mean then we just throw our hands up and say, well, whatever happens, happens. Absolutely not. We need to be aware and put legislative things in place. I, I don't know how we would do it, but that's a, a segue for me into part of your expertise. I don't know if it's the primary part of your, your expertise, but um, I think it is, about all of these tools and the law. I, you, have, you started talking about, there's kind of two areas I want to go to. One is um, you have a really interesting, and you choose to tackle these however you want, really interesting way of thinking about control. I think you even talked about it in terms of a skill apathy. And I was like, wow, I've never really heard that. Maybe I'm just not well read, but I really like that idea. But the other then, kind of the broader thing is, as we use these tools, and I think there's a connection there between them and bias and whatever to inform how we police in the future, how we do um, parole in the future, how we do sentencing in the future, is there, a, is there a way for these tools to be involved in any of that world? And if so, um, how do we have it where it's leveraging us for a more accurate and, and equitable solution? In other words, if we could apply these things to have only the people in a capital punishment situation uh, because they're able to bring more data that lets us come to the right conclusion instead of maybe condemning people that shouldn't be there, and we can narrow that down um, without informing bias. Anyway, I'm rambling, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine how we might use these tools to inform the judicial system and then also this idea of control that you talk about. So the use of, uh, loosely speaking, algorithmically inspired methods mm -hmm. in, in, say, sentencing in criminal justice, that, again, it's not a new thing. So way back in the 1930s and the 1940s, um, criminologists and people that worked in the justice system, even in the United States, were devising all sorts of, you might call them algorithms in a way. Mm -hmm. they, weren't, they weren't computer algorithms, but they were, you know, highly structured sequences of questions um, and surveys about an individual at the conclusion of which you would then be able to sort of tally up the answers and come up with an assessment of whether this person is a high risk of recidivism or a low risk. Now, that's um, an early form of algorithmic criminal risk assessment. So this is not new. And that was always put over against um, 
kind of what would, was called clinical judgment. So you could have st structured judgment, which is this more sort of algorithmic approach, determining mm -hmm. risk, or you could have clinical judgment, which is essentially gut feeling, intuition. You get someone that's been working, let's say, as a social worker in the criminal justice system for 10 years, 15 years. You put them in the room with the person, and then that person asks them questions, something in the in the nature of a kind of um, head-shrinking uh, you know, counselling session. Mm -hmm. Then the person comes away with an assessment, okay, I think this person's now stable. I think they're probably going to be reintegrated into society. They won't be a problem or the opposite. Right. So the algorithms that have become uh, more controversial recently in the criminal justice system are just a ramping up of these older approaches to algorithmic structured decision making. They do hold, you know, tremendous promise. You, mm -hmm. you can you can eliminate human bias. In a, in a way, like the, whatever the clinician's biases are, well, you can eliminate those. But what you can't do is eliminate bias entirely. Mm. So what what tends to happen, what, what has happened in the past, I would say, three to four years, there's been an emphasis on generating algorithms that comply with some particular notion of fairness. Mm. Now, how you define, so these are algorithms, so the only language they understand is the language of mathematics. Mm -hmm. So you try to develop a, a quantitative, a mathematical definition or criterion of fairness, and you try to get your algorithm to, to adhere to that. So I'll give you an example. One way to be fair, to have a fair, unbiased, let's say, algorithm mm -hmm is to have one that um, regardless of whether you're, let's say, I'll just go with the black community and the white, mm -hmm. white. an algorithm such that uh, regardless of whether you're black or you're white, um, after all assessments have been made at the end of some period, we can go back and we can see that um, the number of false positives among whites is the same as the number of false positives among blacks. Mm -hmm. So people that we thought were going to be a risk, but turned out they weren't, um, you want that number to be the same. You want that percentage to be the same across black people and white people. That would be right. one way of having assessing whether an algorithm is fair. Mm -hmm. Here's another way of doing it because these are all just mathematical definitions. Another way is to say, well, everyone that's given a high score, let's say they're given nine out of 10, right? That they will reoffend. We're talking about criminal risk assessment right. here. Someone could be, whether this is bail, parole. So you get nine out of 10. One way to assess the fairness of that algorithm might be to say, for all those people among the, uh, say, the black community that were given a score of 9 out of 10, it should be that um, all those that got 9 out of 10 were 
actually guilty of going on to commit further crime. And we want that to hold among the white community as well. Mm-hmm. So if we, we go and collect all the people that um, uh, received a score of nine, it should be that they total something like 90% of all of those that were um, given the score of nine that went on to reoffend. Mm-hmm. Should be the same. So that's another approach, that's another criterion of fairness defined in quantitative terms. Now, you might think, okay, well, so that's, there's two ways. It turns out that these ways are incompatible. Both of there's something that is fair about both of them. In fact, there's, there's work that shows that that second approach that I mentioned, mm-hmm. that's called calibration, a, a well-calibrated algorithm is probably um, uh, the one that I would want to be judged by from, from work that I've read. But it turns out that that calibration criterion is completely incompatible with the other, the first notion I mentioned. Mm. That, those are just two. There's something like 20 or 30 different mathematical criteria of fairness that you could give. So um, the idea of bringing algorithms into assisting with decision-making in, let's say, in legal context, criminal justice context, it does make sense uh, because there's long-standing work that shows that algorithms perform better than humans at, at making accurate assessments of risk. On the other hand, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we are going to have, you know, sort of all things considered fair unbiased algorithms as a result. We're we're going to be living with forms of bias regardless of what happens. Um, The only way that you can really truly eliminate bias, and in fact, this is an important point, the only way that all these different mathematical criteria can be compatible is when the what's called the base rate, so the incidence of crime, among the black community, the whites, you know, the Latin community and so forth, when the incidence of crime, the crime rates in among those demographics is the same, that's the only time that all those different mathematical criteria of fairness are compatible. You can show it using some basic high school algebra. You can't get them compatible unless the crime rate for every crime is identical across all those different demographics. And for all sorts of complex social reasons, you know, the rate of, let's say, car theft in the black community is not going to be the same as the rate of car theft in the white community. The rate of white-collar corporate crime is not going to be the same in the white community as it is in the black community. Some crimes will be higher, some will be lower. That's a massively complicated story. To ask algorithms to be fair and unbiased is asking for us as a species to sort our shit out, essentially. It's asking them to be God. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we have this notion of uh, justice. I heard um, uh, Sky, um, philosopher, um, a person of faith, 
and he said something, I know I'm going to butcher it, but was saying, look, when we go before a judge, whether it's the ultimate judge in his mind of God or some lesser judge here on earth or even your family, whatever it is, your peers, most of the time we really don't want fair. Um, we, 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 what we want is just like we want, like if we, if somebody came into a courtroom and they were guilty of something and the judge said, look, I'm sure you had the best of intentions and you know what? Life's hard out there. Go, go, go and sin no more. Most of us would look around and say, that's corrupt. That's not right. You know? And if somebody else came in very similar crime and said, and, and it was it, we were able to prove, look, here's the extenuating circumstances around this situation. Doesn't matter. I have a mandatory sentence law. It, I'm just reading it out of the book, and you're going to hard time um, regardless of these other circumstances. Well, we'd say that's not merciful, and we'd rebel. Like in, in these two, um, you know, we, we expect both justice and mercy. And, it, and if we don't have them in a way that makes sense to us as a as a society, we go sideways. We just always do, in my opinion. Um, and that's where we see the worst of atrocities happen. We either have tyranny or we have complete and absolute chaos. And neither one of those, um, at least in this uh, straw man that I've built, work well. I'm hoping that we can use tools to inform human beings um, to their intuition and looking at outcomes but that they don't become the law, they become a tool to enhance, you know, an augment um, yes. and give give a judge or a prosecutor or whoever more information to get tighter to perfection. I don't, I'm curious, I don't even know how we could, that we should even have like a perfect implementation of this as our goal, because I just, I don't think that's a doable thing. What does perfection look like? What does fair look like? Yeah, I'm completely um, in agreement with you about <coughs> the potential use of algorithms in criminal justice context. That's what we've been talking about mostly. Right. Um, to amplify and to enhance accuracy, to sort of try to uh, curtail human biases. Right. So using it as a kind of check on your work. You know, when you were at school and you would learn to do certain um, arithmetic problems, and there would there would be these neat little ways of checking whether your answer was right that mm -hmm. didn't require you to repeat the the sum. Like there were these all these little neat little um, tricks to check that your answer was right. You can think of these algorithms as a check. So if you are making a decision as a judge, even further afield, you know you're you're some sort of a you're a public servant of some kind. Right. Uh, you know, or your um, your corporation, you're trying to hire someone, you want to know who to hire, you know, who to go to, who to go with. Mm -hmm. The idea of making the judgment in the old-fashioned way, but using the algorithm as a, as a check on what mm -hmm. you're doing, I think is probably the best we can hope for. Yeah. It, it, it is, um, I was just having a conversation with somebody and they said, uh, Look, tools out there now, scrub social media. They're looking to see what are you posting? How are you posting? Are you still posting those things? And I keep trying to remind my kids who are all in their 20s, what you put on that web is permanent. Even if you go delete it, I'm telling you it's permanent. And it's okay for 
God help me if I had the same hardcore ideas at 20 years old that I do closer to 60 than 50. But it it is, um, and so people can understand the growth of your thinking and how you apply either some things you become more firm on and other things you sort of adjust or become it's less important. I think that's part of the natural deal. Just be just be aware that everything you put out in the world um, is there. And if these tools go out there and look at them and then come back to a hiring manager, for example, and say, hey, look, this is this, this person very socially active and fits our culture, or they they take up positions in this area or this area. Don't know if that's a good cultural fit. I think that those, um, I'm not as prepared to say it's a social score like they're doing in some parts of the world, but it is for sure a step in that direction. Um, and so we can use it to our benefit, but we should also realize as human beings, these tools are out there and this information uh, could be gathered. <laughs> be, be, be aware. Yeah, well, so this is a, a kind of a separate issue from, from the issue about using algorithms in decision-making. But what you're describing there is really important because what we are is constantly changing. If there's right. one constant, it's that we're changing. Right. A, a famous philosopher, Bertrand Russell, you might have heard of him, oh, yeah. said at one point in his life that when he looks back, he doesn't see one person. He sees like a club of people, of different people. Yeah. You know, and from decade to decade, I, I can attest in my own life, I'm changing so much that in in many ways I can't recognize who I was as a as a 17-year-old. The right. opinions that I had are just kind of unrecognizable to me now. And the indelibility of our online profile of, in the way you described so that what your kids put there now will come back to haunt them in 15 years' time. Right. That seems to be really a major affront to what it is to be a human because yeah. we go through life and we change. And it shouldn't even be you know, a right to change any more than it's the right of a plant to grow or the right, right of someone to undergo puberty. You know, right. it, just, it just happens. Right. And for technology to be used in a way that holds people to this static image of who they were when they were 17 and things that they maybe shouldn't have said when they were 17, but right. to hold someone to the standard of a static entity like that, it just seems to be a major assault on, on what it is to be human. Right. It's unjust. We've had this famously where comedians 20 years ago in a different cultural context used words or ideas and... The, even many of the people in those populations were at the shows, laughed along. 20 years later, those are taboo words. Those are taboo ideas. And they're like, that's that's not part of my current show. That's yeah. not the human being I was. I am now then. Um, and uh, there have been some famous cases. I don't need to get into it. But it is uh, back to the power of tools. It's less about um, for my kids at that this evolutionary process, and sometimes they doubt me, and I'm like, look at your haircut from five years ago. You don't want me to have that picture on the wall, but you were certain at 16 years old that was the style of clothes and the hair, and you're ashamed of it now. You can't even believe that band name is on your shirt. You would have nothing to do with them or whatever. Um, and so that you're going to evolve. You're going to constantly evolve. Some things, there are certain things, for example, of faith and, and family, and for me, that are 
I'm I'm pretty resolved. I've beaten him up a hundred different ways, and I'm pretty firm on him. I got a pretty good understanding of who I am in those things. But there are many other things that I've either just let go completely, they're not worth dividing on, or I've changed my mind because tools and information have come along and allowed me to change my mind on the criminality of certain things or the behavior of certain things. I think that's beautiful, but it should... Uh, um, I just want them to be aware that this this world exists, and for us as good citizens to make sure that as we're uh, employing these tools in our corporate lives, and our personal lives, that we don't leverage them to harm human beings, that we have some ability to understand we change over time, you know? Here's what I want you to do, is talk about this, if you don't mind, and thank you for giving me an extra few minutes, this idea of control. And this is super important to me because I've heard you say it before, many, I've heard a bunch of people talking about artificial intelligence and the idea of control, but they mean it different. Stuart Russell explains it differently, other people differently. You have a more nuanced um, way of describing it. Can you talk about that just for a second, what you mean by it? Yeah, sure. So when people like Stuart Russell talk about it, they're talking about it in the more familiar sense, um, the sense in which I might be under the, the thumb of, of some other entity, you know, right. he or she is controlling me. The AI will control me, like how in, you know, right. space. Um, I'm talking about control in a much more boring way, you know, in a sense, but in a much more realistic way. Mm. So I'm less worried about how from Space Odyssey, and I'm more worried about the kind of control that something has over you when you cease to believe it's there and when you cease to question what it's doing. So there is this effect that has been observed for about 40 years, particularly in you know, highly automated um, industrialized sectors of the economy where the more advanced the technology gets, the the more likely the person that's interacting with it will succumb to a number of psychological effects. One is kind of an obvious one. Their manual control skills degrade. Mm -hmm. I used to know how to do this coding thing. Now that we've got this new package, um, I haven't had to do that for a long time. I think I'm a bit rusty. I've forgotten. So they're, they're all traditional skill sets degrade. Right. Another effect is, and that's dangerous, of course, because if the system doesn't work anymore, you know, I, I may not be able to cut the slack, uh, fill in the, um, fill the gap. Right. Um, another effect is as the system gets more and more technologically savvy and sophisticated, I, um, kind of go on autopilot. I just assume that it knows what it's doing. I don't worry too much about it. So it might come out with all sorts of outputs that that look fine, but either I'm not um, being vigilant, I'm not monitoring it to make sure that it's doing what's right, and I might even get to the point, they call that automation complacency. Mm-hmm. Another effect, which is even worse, is the system is beginning to give me signals that it's wrong. And because I'm so 
duped into this position of trust and complacency, I actually just flatly dismiss evidence that the system is wrong. It would be the equivalent of, you know, a pilot being notified that the right wing of the plane has just been somehow damaged and just saying, nah, that can't be right. And just right. keep going. And meanwhile, you know, you know how that's going to end. Yeah. Um, so that's an, another, another effect. And then there's another, there's still another effect, which is uh, obviously your attention diminishes. So the, the more the system can just work, um, chug along by itself, it becomes like me watching paint dry. So I just sort of fall asleep. Right. So I'm no longer paying attention. These are all ways in which technology takes over, not in the Terminator 2 sense, right. in, in a much more insidious way where we just no longer exercise our critical faculties. And what is a loss of control if not uh, the failure to exercise your, if you like, God-given critical faculties? Right. That's the more dangerous, pernicious an immediate sense of a loss of control. In your role now, do you um, uh, do you teach these concepts? I know you've written about them in your book. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. So the the, the control aspect comes in um, most notably uh, in the public sector. Right. Uh, so there are certain functions. So there's there's this wonderful uh, professor in. I believe it's the University of Chicago. Her name is Chiara Cordelli. And she says that there are some things that should only be done by the state. There are some functions that really are proprietary to the state. Mm -hmm. And and one of them she she mentions is punishment. You know, the, the state should be able to punish people, but no one else should be able to punish people. So if you effectively delegate the function of punishment to, let's say, a private corporation, um, she she has a compelling argument to say that, well, that's whatever that is, that's not punishment. Mm. It might be something else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's violence. Mm-hmm. But punishment is not just violence. Punishment is a form of violence, but it, to be punishment, there's something else about it that makes it legitimate. A kind of legitimates state right. violence, and so that's that's an interesting thought. And if you have automation in uh, the public sector, you know, so lots of public functions where you have those that work in in the department, like the Department of State, State Department, mm-hmm. whatever you name it, mm-hmm. justice, you have people there that should be doing their their job, but they're effectively, let's say in this scenario, going asleep at the wheel Mm -hmm. and they are losing their critical faculties as they rely increasingly on algorithms to do the job for them. This seems to be a loss of control Mm. of the kind that was mentioning, uh, which has potentially very far reaching consequences for, for democracy and for what it means for uh, a state to function properly. There's certain things, if Chiara Cordelli is right, and she mentions punishment, but let's say there are other things that it should just only be the state that has the power to do them. You know, if we are 
uh, if our civil servants are delegating, in effect, delegating their power to entities that are built by the third party, you know, uh, mm-hmm. corporate developers, software engineers, that's that's like giving your authority away, giving your control away. So there are questions about legitimacy here. Now, that's just focusing on the public sector, the public state dimension of this issue. But, I mean, it comes up all the time. I mean, even if you go to a bank, you know, if eventually you might think, uh, you know, I go for a loan or I um, apply for, for credit and... Um, if a human were just to make this decision, they would take all these various factors into account and maybe they should extend me the loan. But if they rely unthinkingly, uncritically on some uh, credit scoring algorithm and they deprive me of, of that, well, that's also not a, not a good thing. It's not presenting the same issues as the state is presenting, but it's, you know, it's a concern. Right. Because you have no voice. You have no ability to say, you know, one of the founding principles that we have here is I have the ability to defend myself. Um, and, and the state, in the best example here, is um, it's really just an expression of the community, right? I've given, I as a community have given power to these authorities. <clears throat> um, and into your point, in the, the most recent point, it is, it used to be I could go into the appliance store because I didn't have 300 bucks to buy a washing machine and I needed them to find it. And so I could make my case to them on why I was a good bet. Here's why I don't have the ability for you to just look up and understand why I don't have the credit score you're looking for. Yeah. Um, now it's just a, they don't even. They don't even take that into account. Yeah. They don't even have the ability to know that. Like the people that are working there are, you know, um, by and large, unless you go to a mom and pop, which almost doesn't exist anymore, very narrow minded. You know, if you're a sort of a corporate chain, you're just the, you know, employee 6274. And I'm not criticizing them. I'm just that's the fact. And they just check the button and it's either green or it's red. Yeah. And I don't yeah. have an explanation for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and credit, you know, access to credit makes the difference between being able to live your life the way you want, being able to have access to things that you should have access to, a home, you know, right, and not having access to those things. Right. It is, it, it, you cannot be part of the modern economy if you don't have access to credit, access to connectivity, and access to energy. If you don't have all three of those things, you're not. Whatever else you are, you're not part of the modern economy. So, yeah. well, we've gone way over your extra time that you've given us. I, I, we're two pages of five pages worth of questions. So John, thank you so much. I, I've so enjoyed the conversation and, uh, we're going to steer everybody to your books. You've got more than one book. Uh, I believe you've got, I think you've got three books out. Is that correct? Yeah. Since 2011. I, I haven't written anything, um, like really truly New York times bestselling quality yet. Oh, uh, that's not true. I completely disagree with you. So we're going to have links to those. If people want to learn more about you, what you publish and what you talk about, how can they find you? Um, so just type my name in and you'll probably be steered to either uh, the University of Oxford website or the University of Edinburgh website. I have profiles on both of those okay. websites. 
we'll make sure to include those links below. And I cannot wait if we can ever convince you to uh, come back on uh, in the future to talk about some of this other stuff that we haven't gotten into because I love your voice. It's um, it's just such a great way that you think through some of these other issues that we haven't even uh, we haven't gotten into. John, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me, David. Yes, sir. Hey, and if you like the show, please hit the like button. And if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Have a good one.